From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Obama administration and industry cooperate to cancel oil and gas leases in Montana's sacred and stunning Blackfeet Indian country. I would say that it's the Swiss Alps of the North American continent. It's so dramatic where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains with beautiful blue lakes, nice green forests, and a vast cultural history of the Blackfeet people. Also, how extra CO2 in the atmosphere has revved up photosynthesis in plants to help slow global warming. We've known for decades that ecosystems are taking up a lot of the carbon dioxide we emit into the atmosphere. What we didn't think was possible was the extent to which they could take up carbon dioxide. So in the past decade, they've taken up more carbon dioxide than ever before. But this extra carbon uptake may not last. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the Standing Rock Sioux continue to protest the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline in a watershed they consider sacred, another Native American nation is celebrating a win for its own holy lands. The federal government has now canceled 15 oil and gas leases on land the Blackfeet Nation reveres in the Badger Two Medicine area near Scenic Glacier National Park in Montana. The move caps two years of intense negotiations. Among the Blackfeet, Secretary of Interior Sally Jewell, Montana Senator John Tester, and Devon Energy, which owned the leases but had never drilled. Tyson Running Wolf is Secretary of the Blackfeet Tribal Council and joins us now from Browning, Montana. Tyson, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be on with you guys. Well, congratulations. Now, tell us about the uh, Badger Two Medicine area and why it's important to the Blackfeet Nation. The Badger Two Medicine is an area that's located just to the southwest of the Blackfeet Reservation and south of Glacier National Park. It covers about 168,000 acres and includes a lot of our cultural, spiritual areas for the Blackfeet people. This is dramatic territory, right? It's pretty close to the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Yeah, it's just to the north of the Bob Marshall Wilderness, and it um, is on the Rocky Mountain Front and butts right up to the Continental Divide. So this is territory with grizzly bears and amazing fish and all kinds of wildlife. I've been to the Bob Marshall. If it's anything like that, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I would say that it's the Swiss Alps of the North American continent. It's so dramatic where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains with beautiful blue lakes, nice green forests, and a vast cultural history of the Blackfeet people. It is unique, it's tough, it's steep, and it has some threatened and endangered species, and including the Blackfeet. <laughs> <laughs> you mean your nation is endangered, huh? We always feel like it, so we always work really hard to try to preserve and protect us as Blackfeet people. Now, why would development of those oil and gas leases have been damaging to the Blackfeet Nation and the area? If there was oil and gas development that happened in there and there was a malfunction or something went wrong, it would compromise the Badger and the Two Medicine Rivers. Two major drainages that we um, hold very dear to us that flows down and connects into the Missouri drainage. And also the Birch Creek system, which always seems to get left out, but Birch Creek is also a big part of that. To what extent is this uh, sacred land for the Blackfeet Nation? This area is a lot of our spiritual area that we go for solitude. A lot of our people go there for different ceremonial purposes, also for gathering of medicines that we have back there. 
also for the relationship of animate and inanimate objects that are back there that we have passed down for generations upon generations of how we use them and what kind of relationship we have with them for the betterment of the Blackfeet people. As I understand it, you and your fellow Blackfeet leaders consider these oil and gas leases to have been granted illegally back in 1982. Explain that for me, please. We felt the leases were illegally let to individual um, leaseholders on oil and gas because they didn't consult the tribe. They didn't let us know what was going to happen back there. The federal government didn't follow their own process on how to involve the Blackfeet people on land that we still feel is owned by the Blackfeet themselves. Tell me, how long has the Blackfeet Nation been on this land, do you think? We have documented historical data that we've been here for 10,000 years or longer. So eventually you got to sit at the table with what, the Secretary of Interior, your Senator from Montana, John Tester, and the company that had owned these leases, Devon Energy. What was the key to getting this deal together once you got to the table? The key was relationship of understanding each other's reasons for protecting certain areas of the rich cultural importance that the Blackfeet have in the area. And also with the Department of Interior and the U.S. Forest Service, knowing that it's a very special place, also with the hard work of John Tester and his connections. Tyson Running Wolf, I understand there's still a couple of oil and gas leases in the Badger to Medicine area. How much of a threat do those uh, leases pose to the Blackfeet Nation and this land? Yeah, them leases, there's 11,000 acres still out there held by two companies. It's just as important as the 32,000 acres that was just canceled. The whole 168,000 acres is still compromised with having them two leases available to lease. So what's going on with getting those leases canceled? Who owns them and what are they saying? I don't necessarily know who owns them. We have people out there researching that right now. We want to get them names and numbers of who owns them two particular last leases, get them to the federal government, get them back to the Blackfeet Tribal Business Council, and start engaging in some positive dialogue so that we could try to make something happen to where we can get these leases canceled right away. And of course, when leases are canceled, the folks get their money back and whatever extra fees they've paid. Yeah, they'll be compensated. What's next? for the Blackfeet Nation's efforts to protect sacred lands, including the Badger Two Medicine area? Co-management of the Badger Two Medicine, that's the next thing we're shooting for. We always push on Glacier National Park, which is to the north, and also the Forest Service, which houses and trusts the Badger Two Medicine, that we would like to put back the two most important things on the landscape, and that's the buffalo and the Blackfeet. And we want to cooperatively work with both of them entities to make that happen. And any other management decisions, we want to be sitting at the table, and we also want to make sure that our people are right involved in the best interest of the tribe on what the direction of that landscape should be. Because right now, much of the territory, especially, say, the Bob Marshall Wilderness, no one is allowed to live there, as I understand it. That's correct. And, of course, this was your ancestral lands. That was our ancestral lands, yep. And, by the way, in Blackfeet, What's the name of Badger to Medicine Area? What do you call it in your language? So you'd say Badger, which is me skim. Then you'd say to medicine, which is natuk natus. So it's me skim natuk natus. And the Blackfeet word for hope? Hope. Well, the Blackfeet word for anything of hope or survival is komotani. Well, I trust this adds to the komotani for the Blackfeet. 
Tyson Running Wolf is Secretary of the Blackfeet Nation. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. You bet you. Thank you. Even as the Interior Department was canceling oil and gas leases in Montana, its Bureau of Land Management was setting new rules for the leasing of federal lands for solar and wind energy. Federal land for renewable energy production will now be leased under terms more favorable for financing. The rules come in response to a review of sustainable energy production on public property that the Obama administration began in 2012, though the incoming Trump administration could block or change them, even though they have bipartisan support. Some 14 Republican and Democratic members of Congress have endorsed the rules, so we called up Jennifer Macedonia, an energy fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, to find out what is the bipartisan appeal of renting federal lands for sustainable energy. Well, there is clearly bipartisan support for clean energy, and this rule shows that that it's important and possible. This rule has been praised by environmentalists, some in industry, political leaders across the aisle. There were 14 House Republicans and Democrats hailed it as a win from both an environmental and economic standpoint in a letter to the Secretary of the Interior in June. So it's, it has received bipartisan support. It's addressing both economic and environmental concerns that can raise revenue for the U.S., as well as increase deployment of clean energy to help us all. Tell me exactly how these new rules reform the process of leasing public lands for renewable energy projects. Sure. The main piece of it is that it brings in a competitive bidding process for renewable energy projects. And it's incentivizing that those projects occur on low-conflict land, which is land that has not already been set aside for wildlife or other uses, lands that are not going to have, for example, sage-grouse habitat or some conflict with an endangered species or other sensitive lands to be concerned about. So trying to incentivize folks from doing their leasing on these lands. Tell me about the problems with leasing that occurred in the past that led to the Bureau of Land Management to have these new rules. Well, without a competitive bidding process, someone who applies for a lease is really not, you know, whoever gets the first application in is the the first one considered essentially for this track of land. And that's not always the best application. Secondly, because we're talking about potential conflicts with the Endangered Species Act, potentially sensitive lands, and wind and energy, solar development, have complex environmental reviews associated with them to determine if there are any conflicts. So this has tended to be a long process. It has made it more difficult to get through the process. And in many cases, people were more likely to look to private lands instead of public lands. Now, there's some solar and wind companies that are concerned about this rule. Uh, The American Wind Energy Association uh, has said it'll make federal land less attractive to wind developers because these rules are going to add time, uncertainty, complexity, and and, and cost to this process. How valid are those concerns, do you think? So some in uh, the solar and wind development industry would have liked the rule to go further in smoothing the way for renewable development on federal lands, not just in these pre-screened designated leasing area. The rules attempting to balance the need for time-consuming project-specific reviews to protect wildlife and sensitive lands with the goal of encouraging renewable energy development. And to balance those needs, the rule settles on a dual approach where pre-screened, non-conflict lands get a green light, expedited process, 
and the rest of public lands still require jumping through more hoops. So uh, how likely is it that the Trump administration will see this as a useful rule and not want to roll it back? There's a lot in this rule to like from a markets perspective. Part of the Trump energy platform is an all-of-the-above approach to energy, including wind and solar. However, Trump has said that he favors fossil fuel development on federal lands over wind, solar, and, and geothermal, but he's not indicated that he would undo these rules. Some of his past concern over wind energy, in particular in conflicts with his Scottish golf course, maybe raised some concerns, particularly on the wind energy side, where they need some additional steps to be put in place to complement this rule to make it really effective for deploying wind energy. But there's a lot in here in terms of making it a competitive process, which is similar to the way oil and natural gas leasing on federal lands is done. It fits into the all of the above approach to energy. It fits into using market-based approaches. So there is a lot that the Trump administration should want to keep in this rule and a lot of reasons for keeping it on the books. Well, I want to thank you for taking this time with us today. Jennifer Macedonia is an energy expert at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking with you. Coming up, welcome allies in the bid to cut atmospheric carbon. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Time to take a trip to Conyers, Georgia now to find out about the world beyond the headlines. Peter Dykstra of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's ehn.org, has been digging about there. So, Peter, what have you found? Hi, Steve. You know, a few days ago, I took to Google to remind myself about how we're sometimes collectively a lot less smart than we think. Oh, so what did you find on Google? From months before the presidential election, there was a unified theme voiced by former President George W. Bush, by liberal pundits like Rachel Maddow, by conservative pundits like David Brooks. They all foretold the death of the Republican Party. Hmm. Seems to me that party now will control the White House and both houses of Congress. And likely the balance of the Supreme Court, and possibly most significant of all, the GOP is getting very close to controlling enough state legislatures to push through constitutional amendments. This is all happening at a time when the Republican Party is as anti-environment as it's ever been. In the most recent congressional scorecard from the League of Conservation Voters, of the 247 Republicans in the House of Representatives, none received a rating as high as 50%. Nearly 100 Republicans had a score of zero for their environmental votes in the year 2015. Yet another sign that a lot of conservatives have apparently given up on conservation. <laughs> Looks like the environmental advocates have got their work cut out for them, huh? Yeah, there's no way to state that without it being an understatement, Steve. But let's look at one realm where the big environmental groups and the big coal companies have something in common post-election. I can't imagine those two having much in common at all, Peter. 
Well, both Big Coal and Big Green benefited from reactions to the election of Donald Trump. For Big Coal, it was on Wall Street. Peabody Energy's share price shot up 59% the day after the election. Another big coal producer, Cloud Peak, rose by almost 18%. And those gains leveled off a bit. But still, a business that, like the Republican Party, was declared dead by a lot of pundits is once again showing some signs of life. All right, well, that's Big Coal. What about Big Green? Nonprofit environmental groups reported a surge in new members and donations and volunteers. The Sierra Club said it got as many new supporters in the week following the election as they'd gotten in all of the rest of 2016 so far. The Environmental Defense Fund said its election week haul of donations doubled the total raised during those same days in 2015. This is in part due to organizations seizing the opportunity to send out urgent funding appeals that they weren't exactly expecting to have to send. And it's part due to what you might call panic giving by individuals who were surprised and alarmed by the Trump victory. Other non-environment groups like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU report the same thing happening. So, Peter, these urgent appeals uh, work both ways, right? I seem to recall the National Rifle Association getting a surge of new support after Barack Obama was elected in 2008. Yeah, not just support. There was also a surge in new gun permits and purchases. Conversely, and and this is a little off our normal topic, but it's relevant, gun sales plummeted once Hillary Clinton was no longer a threat, and stock in gun manufacturers like Smith & Wesson and Ruger shot downward, 10 to 20% losses in the days after the election. Hmm. Kind of sounds like that old stock tip, buy on rumor and sell on news. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, So, Steve, how about a little history for this week? Sure, floor is yours. 51 years ago, November 26, 1965, saw the most famous act of littering in American history. A man named Richard Robbins and his accomplice, one Arlo Guthrie, dumped the remains of a Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat down a hillside in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Two days later, a local law enforcement investigation revealed an incriminating envelope beneath the pile of garbage, and Officer William J. Obenheim... Ah, the famous Officer Obi. Right, apprehended the perpetrators who were fined and released in order to pick up the garbage. And so we got the Alice's Restaurant song, even the Alice's Restaurant movie. And even the Alice's Restaurant cookbook. And Officer Roby got to play himself in the movie, which along with the 18 and a half minute song became Thanksgiving traditions and a strong political statement opposing the Vietnam War. All of this from a littering arrest, it's a tribute to the power of music and art. Yep. Peter Dykes is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. More than a century ago, the powerful nature writing of John Muir and Henry David Thoreau and others inspired the protection of some of the most scenic treasures of the American landscape. But ever since Bill McKibben wrote The End of Nature in 1989, there's a new realization that no part of the landscape is untouched or unaffected by humans. Writers of the millennial generation came of age in the shadow of this mediated nature, often growing up in urban landscapes during economic recessions where the end of nature can seem all too real. And a recent anthology of essays by millennials called Coming of Age at the End of Nature shows them engaging in new and urgent ways with their surroundings. Today, we have another of these essays. Hi, I'm Megan Kimball. I'm a writer living in Tucson, Arizona. And here is an excerpt from my essay, The Wager for Rain. 
On a Monday morning in September, I am reading A Layperson's Guide to Arizona Water, and I am stopped in my tracks by the dream of cloud seeding. I am a layperson in both senses of the word, neither an ordained minister of a church nor a professional academic, but I suppose that the University of Arizona's Water Resource Center does not intend to confer religious overtones to the subject of creating water in a desert. Water officials predict a very precise 25% chance that water supply won't meet demand within the next 10 years, but we are reassured. Quote, scholars believe that when the Hohokam population grew beyond its ability to stretch its limited water supplies, the civilization failed. But these early desert dwellers lacked the technological resources of contemporary water managers, and Arizona is now developing new ways to manage and extend this scarce resource. I scrawl in the margin. But this won't happen to us. Technology will save us. I realize it is the resources of contemporary water managers that allow water to flow freely out of my faucets. But alone in my apartment, it is too easy to criticize human hubris. Quote, one technology is cloud seeding. Cloud seeding injects chemicals such as silver iodide into clouds to allow water droplets or ice crystals to form more easily, increasing precipitation. I have never heard of cloud seeding, and I am scandalized or entranced by the idea. It is as if I was not the only wide-eyed seven-year-old who believed in the possibility of man-made rain. Though cloud seeding has been appropriated by academics at the University of Arizona and elsewhere, it's hardly the first attempt to stir up rain in the desert. Cloud seeding is technological rainmaking. Starting with the first people who settled here, the Hohokam, Indigenous civilizations have practiced elaborate ceremonies to entice rain from the clouds. We may well dismiss their rainmaking as the religion of a failed civilization, but the Ta'anotam and other people who have lived off the desert land for centuries are very much still alive and flourishing and continue to perform rainmaking ceremonies every year. Music, cactus wine, and dancing are the seeds to their clouds. Maybe I am stopped in my tracks on a Monday morning because, contained within this layperson's guide, cloud seeding feels no less religious to me than a rain dance. You know, people refer to the church of cloud seeding. People refer to the believers in cloud seeding. I had one scientist say that when I said, do you believe in cloud seeding? He said, I'm an agnostic. The Western United States are spending about $15 million a year on cloud seeding, and there is still no consensus in the scientific community about whether or not it works. Water droplets form around something called the condensation nuclei, and usually those are ice crystals or particulates in the air. And cloud seeding is basically artificially injecting those condensation nuclei into the atmosphere. So um, seeding involves injecting particles, which is typically silver iodide, into the clouds to provide this nucleus around which rain can gather and then fall. Since the 1970s, scientists have been trying to measure how much rain falls when you seed clouds. Um, and the problem with that is that you can throw up a bunch of silver iodide and you can measure how much rain falls. But what you can't measure, what is significantly harder to measure, is the rain that wouldn't have fallen if you didn't seed the cloud. And you also can't measure where that rain would have fallen otherwise had you not made it rain in this particular place. You know, there's an adage in the West that water flows toward money. And this is an example where we have decided that rain is going to fall on money. We've 
created legislation to divvy up groundwater and rivers, but we have no regulation over who controls the sky and who has access to rain. So, you know, you have to have $15,000 on the smallest scale to get a silver iodide machine to cloud seed. So what does that mean in terms of people who don't have that kind of money? Um, farmers who one neighbor is going to seed his clouds and then the, the farm adjacent to him isn't going to have access to that rain. There are also much larger scale programs by you know, ski resorts, for example, in the Colorado Rockies. Lots of Western states have million dollar weather modification programs. I feel very skeptical that technology will save us. Cloud seeding is a good example of how we deploy technology, convinced that it will work, that it will produce more rain, and we haven't measured that to be true. Not heeding the example of civilizations like the Hohokam and the Autumn, when you run out of water, your civilization collapses, is a great example of, of pride that um, makes me really nervous. That's writer Megan Kimball. Her essay is part of the collection Coming of Age at the End of Nature, a generation faces living on a changing planet. In January of 2015, scientists found some 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, up from the 270 parts per million when the Industrial Age began in the late 1700s. All that extra CO2 in the air is warming the planet at a dangerous rate, scientists tell us, but we may have gotten a period of grace, thanks to green plants. Using photosynthesis, green vegetation soaks up carbon dioxide, and new research suggests that over recent decades, rising CO2 levels have helped plants ramp up photosynthesis and slow the rate of global warming but don't expect the trend to last. According to researchers at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, it will soon be too hot for plants to keep absorbing so much added CO2. Trevor Keenan, the lead author on this research, is a global change ecologist at the lab and joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much, great to be here. So how excited are you by these results? Well, these results are very exciting. We've known for decades that ecosystems are taking up a lot of the carbon dioxide we emit into the atmosphere. Now, they're not taking up near enough to really stop climate change, but they are slowing it down significantly. What if plants weren't doing this, taking up all this CO2? Where would we be? We'd be about 460 parts per million already. That's something we don't expect until about 2050 or 2060. How does this work scientifically? I mean, how can these plants increase the, the amount of carbon dioxide they are absorbing? So there are two effects. So one is the Plants use atmospheric CO2 to grow and to support their metabolism. So they take CO2 from the atmosphere through a process called photosynthesis. The other major process that's involved is respiration. So plants and microbes respire CO2 back into the atmosphere. And this is highly dependent on temperatures. So as CO2 is going up, plants take more CO2 from the atmosphere. But as temperatures go up, they also release more CO2 into the atmosphere because of the effect of temperature on respiration. So in other words, it sounds like uh, more CO2 will go into plants as long as temperatures stay low, but if temperatures start to rise, then they won't be so interested in this, huh? Exactly. As temperatures rise with CO2, that has a net negative effect on the carbon balance of the land surface and on ecosystems. So how reassuring should this news be 
if at all? Not very. It's a period that is quite temporary. We expect temperatures to continue to increase in the future, and they already have over the past two years with the large El Nino event we've seen globally. Um, and the net effect of this is a release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. A lot of carbon goes into soils, and these soils are respiring in dependence on temperature. And as temperature rises, that carbon that has been stored there could be released back into the atmosphere. That's super important because in the Paris Agreement that was signed uh, recently, two-thirds of the countries said they would use the land sink to help them in their mitigation efforts. Trevor, how were you and your colleagues able to determine that plants have increased their uptake of CO2 over these past few decades? So we have really good measurements of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. This has been measured very accurately over five decades since the 50s. And by examining changes in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere over time, we can infer what is happening on the land surface in the oceans, because we also know how much we're emitting into the atmosphere. Yeah, so that raises one question. How do you know what's going into the ocean versus what's being taken up on the land here? And primarily from a modeling approach. So ocean models tend to agree very well with each other. And there's also a lot lower variability from year to year in the ocean than there is on land. So it's proportionally more easier to estimate how much carbon is going into the ocean. On land, however, models disagree quite a lot. And there's a lot of variability from year to year. Trevor, are you able to differentiate which plants are doing the best in this increased CO2 regime? In other words, are are they big trees that are getting even bigger because of this? Or are they little plants, grasses? Where where do we see this uptake? So it's really not known. Um, It's very complex to detect changes biomass stocks over time. For example, estimates from satellite data and atmospheric data would say that a lot of this carbon dioxide is going into the tropics. But when you measure tropical biomass over time, and reports show very conflicting results. We also see greening at higher latitudes as the earth warms and these temperature limited systems are beginning to green. So a lot of carbon dioxide could be taken up by this new vegetation and also in semi-arid regions. So regions which are water limited because increased CO2 in the atmosphere, another effect it has is makes plants more efficient at using water. So more vegetation can survive in regions where previously it couldn't. Now, to what extent might this finding be misinterpreted by climate action skeptics and cited as evidence that the CO2 is actually good for the planet, if some have suggested? Well, climate skeptics are keen to use whatever tidbits of information they can to justify their message, but ultimately it will be taken completely out of context. In any warming systems, especially a system so complex as the Earth's climate system, you expect brief periods where there is no warming apparent. Those periods ultimately end because the system is on an upward trajectory. So although they could use the results to say that CO2 is good for plants, it's really missing the whole picture. CO2 induces warming globally, which as we know, is very detrimental, especially as we move further into the century and the kind of extreme temperatures we expect to see because of this CO2 is most definitely detrimental to plants uh, through increased drought mortality, increased uh, fire frequencies globally. It, It really is quite a scary scenario we're looking at. Trevor Keenan is a global change ecologist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you very much. Coming up, harnessing farm power to fight global warming. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. 
Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the concern about rising CO2 turns to alarm in places, experts are studying possible ways we might reduce it in the atmosphere. Several countries are looking to agriculture and farms and forests as part of the answer. Now a large and comprehensive book, The Carbon Farming Solution, probes and analyzes the potential of perennial crops and agroforestry to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Its author, Eric Tonesmeyer, is using his own garden in Holyoke, Massachusetts, as a demonstration of what can be done, even with just a tenth of an acre of land. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer paid Eric a visit to find out all about it. The first hint you get that there's a mystery behind Eric Tonesmeyer's stucco-covered house when you drive up there are the large, lush leaves of an eight-foot banana plant in the front yard, unusual for suburban New England. But it shows what carbon farming means, agriculture to remove excess carbon from the air and soil and store it in trees and plants. It's a form of permaculture, mirroring natural and traditional systems that enhance and nurture the earth. None of these techniques were developed for the purpose of sequestering carbon. They were all designed because they do something important on the farm. So increasing organic matter in the soil is already a good idea on the farm. Uh, incorporating trees in the right way and in the right context can increase the productivity of the farm quite a bit. Studies in France have found, for example, that when you combine um, annual grain crops with timber trees and you have the spacing right, um, on 100 acres, you could produce the same amount of grain and timber that would take 130 to 140 acres to produce if they were grown on their own. Those of us who live in cold climates with a small backyard find practices like interplanting woody trees and grain crops foreign. And geographically speaking, they are. The most successful and efficient carbon sequestering farms and gardens are in humid and tropical climates, such as India, parts of Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean. My wife's family has one in Guatemala and it's the most unremarkable thing there, but I could go and get a PhD walking around in there because it's so fascinating. The multi-strata agroforestry system with multiple layers of trees and shrubs and vines and herbs is the very best system for sequestering carbon that we have agriculturally. In fact, some studies have found certain instances where tropical home gardens actually sequester more carbon than natural forests nearby. So they can be very powerful. And yet we don't have a lot of commercial models yet in cold climate. So that's been a lot of my work the last 25 years. Large-scale commercial agriculture in much of the world, and certainly in the US, features annual, often commodity crops that depend on widespread use of chemicals. Think corn and soybeans, though it can also mean apple and almond orchards. And it produces a lot of food. Productivity per acre is very high. And that's great because that allows us to minimize deforestation to clear land for more agriculture. And many would argue that more fertilizer and pesticide would help us do that. My personal approach that I advocate in the book is that there are agroecological practices that also intensify, grow more on the same land without increasing those less environmentally friendly aspects of agriculture as we know it today. One traditional practice Eric is using here is growing perennial plants, plants that last more than one growing season. And he often uses edibles you can't find in seed company catalogues. 
but in the United States, the yields of perennials can't compete with annuals yet, so his garden is a kind of informal research project where he's out to match the carbon capture potential of the home gardens in the tropics. Mostly perennial crops are not really interesting to big seed companies, partly because perennials, once you buy the seed, you don't have to go back and do it again, so it's not their priority. And Big seed companies aren't working on developing perennial kale, let's just say. <laughs> well, we should go and have a look at your plot. Um, you are demonstrating some of these potential ways of carbon farming in your own backyard. Great. I follow Eric behind his greenhouse first, through a green tunnel of tall shrubs and fragrant flowering plants. Yeah, this is a little patch that has plants that attract beneficial insects. These are mountain mint, which is a native one, and there's a, a large nitrogen-fixing shrub, false indigo, which is being used as a trellis for perennial edible beans, which are not yet ready for prime time. They need some breeding work. There's great perennial beans in the tropics and even in the warm temperate or Mediterranean climates. But here we, um, we still need some work to be done. I'd never heard of perennial beans, but this one is hardly new. Eric has the scientific name. Phaseolus polystachios. That was actually uh, cultivated historically by Native Americans uh, throughout the East, and some Native folks definitely still grow and use it today. The beans are pretty small. They're maybe the size of a mung bean, but people eat mung beans. And with some work, it could really be developed into a very exciting new crop for this climate. And the, the shrub, as well, is, is one of the most widely used agroforestry species in China, uh, even though it's native here. And it's used for as pesticide, as fodder, uh, and as an indigo dye. So it's a very nice multi-purpose multi species as well. It's one of the best uh, of our native species for agroforestry. Well, it's interesting that you have beans because obviously beans are one of the three sisters, the corn, the beans and the squashes, which the Native Americans uh, grew. And they, in fact, grew the, the beans up their corn plants. And still do. This is, uh, we're, we're looking at sort of a similar model. Uh, we've, we've done some different trials here trying to replicate that particular corn, beans and squash with perennials. And we have not found the perfect match, but this kind of system of a vine climbing on a nitrogen-fixing tree you see a lot throughout the tropics. This cohabitation is a recurring theme in Eric's garden. It seems every crop has other plants with multiple uses growing around, above and underneath. In these multi-strata systems, these food forest systems, um, we try and take advantage of all the space. So we ask ourselves what can we produce in the shade or in the partial shade beneath and between those trees. Uh, in the tropics it's things like coffee and cacao and vanilla or kava, tea, a lot of really wonderful crops. We don't have anything quite that great here yet for really full shade, but we're growing lots of perennial vegetables in the shade, culinary herbs, nitrogen-fixing plants, plants that attract beneficial insects, um, aggressive uh, ground covers that serve as a living mulch, a living mulch that can stop erosion, be turned into the soil to add structure and attract soil organisms like worms, nematodes and bacteria to break it down. I follow Eric around to a mostly shaded patch of yard space along the side of his house where he's growing fruit trees. These are pawpaw trees, uh, not the Caribbean pawpaw, which is papaya, but the, the native eastern pawpaw of the US and I think a tiny bit of southern Canada. Um, it's in the same family as a lot of tropical fruits like soursop um, or custard apple, but it really is very happy with the cold here. It's native up into Michigan, so it can certainly handle cold. 
Uh, it produces a, a very large fruit. Uh, it's North America's largest native edible fruit, I'm told. And I did see one last year that was the size of a, of a large mango. Wow. Typically ours are more like a medium-sized potato. They're still young right now, still small right now. And the really nice thing about pawpaw is it's very happy with partial shade. So it may be like our cacao or coffee in that it could be a shade crop for us in a commercial multi-strata system. In fact, the few commercial producers of pawpaw that are working in the U.S. now are finding that they're very vulnerable to wind damage and that interplanting trees actually makes you get more, ripen more pawpaws because it slows down the winds. Beneath the pawpaws is a pile of twigs and branches and suckers cut away from the trees. Instead of removing them, Eric often leaves this organic matter to decompose right there on the ground. As that material breaks down, it turns into organic matter. So a high residue system like this um, is very, very good for carbon. And we're seeing that a lot around the world that, um, uh, like in Brazil, there's a, a very exciting agroforestry movement underfoot that uh, is largely based on heavily pruning timber trees to put carbon back into degraded soils. So we do a lot of that here and it is unsightly to the average gardener and it was unsightly to me for many years, but I've come to think, well, if the ground in my garden looks like the soil of a forest, then I'm on the right track. Eric leads me to the back of the garden, conveniently screened by a 12-foot bamboo grove whispering in the breeze. He uses bamboo for just about everything. This one we absolutely love. It's just such a useful product for us to have in the garden for um, trellising, for staking things. Almost every challenge we have, we use bamboo. When our fruit branches are so heavy uh, with fruit that they want to break, we cut some bamboo and put it under there to prop it up. So it's listed as having about 1,500 uses. One of the challenges is that it often doesn't fit into the climate finance system we have because it's not properly a tree, it's a giant grass. So a lot of these fall between the cracks in national agencies because they're maybe not really forestry and not really agriculture. How many different species do, are you growing here, do you think? We're growing about 300 species of useful perennials. Maybe 70 or 80 of those are woody plants, so which would be trees or shrubs or bamboos. We have um, about 80 species with edible leaves, perennials with edible leaves, about 50 perennials with edible fruit and then a whole diversity of other things. Um, and then we grow a bunch of annuals too, and we have different kinds of micro livestock as well, and some kinds of fungi that we cultivate. So it's, it's very diverse. And although this is a crazy level of diversity for a farm, for a very small garden, it's fun if that's what you're into. Over alongside the neighbor's fence, Eric grows fruit bushes, some familiar like raspberries, Asian pears and blueberries, and some more unexpected. And if we turn and face the other way, we have a, a young persimmon that'll eventually fill in this area, uh, and then a chestnut, and then a mulberry. So we're really looking along the north edge of, of building out this very fruit and nut type forest. And we have some trees with edible leaves that we're very excited about, and we're starting to move those around the garden more and more as well. Trees with edible leaves. Now, are you going to eat these? We eat them now. We, in fact, the main problem is we're eating them so much that they're not growing well enough and we need to lay off them a little bit. Eric has calculated that his garden makes its own small but noble contribution to addressing the carbon crisis. We ran numbers at one point on our backyard and figured that the carbon sequestration happening here in this tenth of an acre 
offsets, roughly speaking, the emissions of one American adult in one year. So certainly the scale at which we're doing this is not the scale which is necessary to fully address the problem, but it's sort of a, a research and development project and it's certainly doing more than mowing a lawn. It's a step in the right direction. Which direction should we step in now? Eric heads over to what he describes as the carbon sequestering food of the future. This is a, um, a bush clover that grows about uh, nine or 10 feet high here. It's a marvelous feed for livestock. It's a, a commonly used agroforestry species in Asia, um, and you can make leaf protein concentrate out of it. Yes, Eric believes our children and grandchildren could be, and maybe should be, eating leaf concentrate steaks. There's a whole class of these grasses that you can extract protein from, and some yield a concentrate that's as much as 50% protein on a dry weight basis. So by, by switching to these giant grasses, you can produce protein and energy on the same land while sequestering carbon in the soil. So there are a lot of these uh, very new interesting solutions emerging and the proposal is to feed that, to feed that protein to livestock. I would argue you can also feed it to people as someone who eats it myself. But the productivity on a per acre basis of protein with leaf protein concentrate is about 30 times more than beef. So there are a lot of interesting places we can go. I like beef, I think it's delicious, but... Um, uh, you don't have hamburger every day. I don't have hamburger every day. And I don't really think, unless maybe you live in Montana or Wyoming where grazing is the most appropriate use of the land, farming wise in some places, um, I, I don't think we're all gonna be eating three steaks a day and that's gonna be our way to get climate change mitigation. But in spite of all the novel ways Eric's trying to help, he admits that carbon agriculture has its problems. There's a limit to how much carbon you can store in soil and biomass. And experts estimate that that's somewhere around 200 billion tons globally. So in other words, a soil fills with organic matter to a certain point and then it's, they say, saturated. It's more or less filled up. And, and a forest will, will rapidly sequester carbon when it's young, but when it starts to fill in, it's full. And it's not going to put it on at a very rapid rate anymore. That, that's, that's actually a little uh, daunting, the fact that we cannot sequester all the carbon we need to to actually uh, reduce the parts per million of CO2 to the 350, the famous 350. If we did it now and ceased all emissions today, we could. So um, given that all emissions are not gonna stop this year, we need to look for more and more aggressive ways to sequester carbon on farms. How receptive are farmers in general to this kind of idea, to this kind of shift of the way they work? Well, in the United States, um, a lot of our farmers are very grumpy about climate change and don't think it's a real thing at all. But uh, when you talk about the particular practices, many of them are very excited about them and want to do them. Certainly many of our farmers obviously both believe in climate change and are enthusiastic about trying to mitigate it on the farm, but not all of them are. The barrier is that to make a transition on your farm, even if you're, let's say, just changing from conventional to organic, let alone bringing in an agroforestry system, is you're looking at a two to five year period where you're losing money. And most farmers are not operating in a way that they can do that. So that's where the need for finance comes in. And we see all these people divesting from fossil fuels. We'd like to see a robust 
financing system so they can invest that money in carbon farming. It goes out to farmers to make these transitions to get over that two to five year hump. And it's not like we need to pay farmers every year forever to do this. We just need to help them make the transition because again, most of these practices increase production on the farm. Before I leave, I ask Eric if he has any advice for home gardeners like me who want to sequester more carbon on their patch. Well, the first thing is growing any of your own food at all is reducing emissions for transportation. Um, and anything you can do to reduce tillage, to have a no-till system, a heavy mulch system is going to be excellent. Any of your own composting you can do is going to be excellent. You're starting to bank some of that carbon in your soil organic matter. And the more you can perennialize, the better. And I feel like the, the gateway drug to perennialization is berries. Everybody likes berries. Berries are delicious. They're really good for you. Most of them are pretty easy to grow. Uh, and in this climate, we have some good options for at least partial shade and a few for full shade. And that's where I would have people start. And that way they can be part of the carbon farming solution? Absolutely, absolutely. If all of us did this in our gardens, it wouldn't be enough to do the trick, but it would be a huge contribution. I'm sold. And not only because the bounty of Eric Tonesmeyer's backyard is such an inspiration and a rebuke to less competent, more scattershot gardeners like me, it's also because if we believe the climate's changing and the way we live here in the more developed part of the world is making things worse, then working to fix the problem in whatever way we can is surely also our responsibility. And how wonderful that something as joyful and satisfying as growing your own food can be part of the answer. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Holyoke, Massachusetts. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Aidan Connolly, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Alex Metzger, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. Public Radio International.